Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we have Marion Nessel, a professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at New York University. She earned a PhD in molecular biology and an MPH in public health nutrition from the University of California, Berkeley. She is the author of six prize-winning books, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, What to Eat, Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics, Eat, Drink, Boat, An Illustrated Guide to Food Politics, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning, Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. Her most recent book, Let's Ask Marion, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health, is one of the topics of Vera's interview today. Marion has spent most of her professional career as a public health nutritionist and food studies academic. For decades, she has been thinking, writing, publishing, and teaching about how politics affects and distorts food systems. The goal of her recent work has been to inspire not only voting with forks for healthier and more environmentally sustainable personal diets, but also voting with boats. She means we need to engage in politics to advocate for food systems that make better food available and affordable to everyone, that adequately compensate everyone who works to produce, prepare, or serve food, and that deal with food in ways that can serve and sustain the environment. Marion is a force to be reckoned with in the nutrition, food, and public health world. Our goal is not only to educate you, the listener, but also our guests on the concept of sugar as a drug and food addiction in general. In this episode, Vera respectfully challenges Marion on some of her thoughts about nutrition, and we find out if she believes in food addiction. They have an enlightening conversation around the food confusion dogma that exists with different nutrition camps. They discuss the calorie conundrum, and Marion shares her personal experiences in going to bat with the sugar industry. We want to give a special shout out to our friend Tony Vassallo for moderating the audience questions after the interview. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so just as a quick cap, Dr. Marion Nessel has written more than 10 books, notably Food Politics, Soda Politics, Unsavory Truth, and then the most recent one, Let's Ask Marion. And this panel today is a kind of a like that. It's a uh, Q&A, a question and answer from the public to ask questions to Marion. So welcome, Marion. It's your turn to say something. Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. Thank you. I just want to correct it that this book, which is a tiny little palm-sized book of essays, these are original essays. They're not blog posts. They were written in response to questions from a friend of mine, Carrie Truman, and I did the book in, you know, very closely with her. Is there anything else you want to say about who you are before I launch into my questions? Sure. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. Emerita, I'm retired. This is what retirement looks like. And Paulette Goddard, for people who don't know, was a 1940s movie star who was married to Charlie Chaplin and then later to Eric Mark, who wrote All Quiet on the Western Front. And she left $20 million to NYU, which was really nice of her. Wow, what a story that is. Okay, so Marion, I want to start with one of my favorite quotes. The food industry is not a social service industry. Food production, research, education, the marketing, all of this influenced by the profit motive of the food industry, not by a desire to provide healthy nutrition and social welfare for us all. So my first question to you is, has the situation gotten any better? Is it the same or is it worse? Well, I think people know more about it. And that's the really big change. 
I know food companies, I always think that I that in my writing, I'm just saying the obvious, except that it's like the elephant in the room. Nobody ever talks about the influence of the food industry on what we eat. And I think people are noticing more. That's the really big change. I would love to think that my work had something to do with that, but it may just be a secular trend. Well, I think you're being very humble. But anyway, I'm just going to continue on here. A phrase, like if I think about how is it that the food industry has done being so successful at having its fingers in so many pots, both in nutritional policy and in education and in, I mean, in, even in the regulation itself of food. It seems that one of the tools that you use, I'd like you to talk about this, you use this term called nutritional schizophrenia and how that was one tool that could make it so that the food industry could kind of fracture us so that we couldn't really see what was happening. Did you want to elaborate on any of that? Well, I actually don't remember using the term nutrition schizophrenia. I wonder if you're referring to what's called nutritionism. We're focusing on nutrients as representing a sort of a symbol for the entire food. And to the extent that nutritionists talk about nutrients, salt, sugar, fat, it's like a euphemism because we don't really, most people don't sit in front of a bowl of sugar and spoon sugars in their mouth. I'm sure there are some people that do, but I don't know. But people drink sodas or they eat desserts, they eat candy. And if you talk about sugar, you're talking about a nutrient. If you're talking about the food, you're talking about something more complicated. And the minute that nutritionists set standards for sodium, sugar, saturated fat, calories, whatever the standards can be, then the food industry can come in and devise a product that has one milligram of sugar less and call that a healthy product. That's nutritionism in action. And when I look at the dietary guidelines for Americans, for example, I've been complaining about this since 1980, that when they talk about what people are supposed to eat more of, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, they talk about food. When they talk about what people are supposed to eat less of, they talk about salt, sugar, and fat. Those are euphemisms, and they're not very helpful. What you really need to do is to look at what the main food sources of those nutrients are and say less of that, but they can't do that for political reasons. When the dietary guidelines tried to say eat less meat, the meat industry went nuts probably the wrong word. The meat industry, what, bananas? No, that won't work either. The meat industry was not happy. Let's put it that way. They used their political power to stop any kind of suggestion that people should eat less meat. So we're focusing on one of the nutrients, which is sugar. I mean, the sugar industry, as you said, with the meat industry, has not been happy with this move toward uh, anti-sugar. So would you say that's a mistake if we're wanting to avoid this nutritionism breakdown? Well, it puts too much burden on people to try to figure out where the sugar is in foods. I much prefer a food-based approach always. The first thing that you should do if you want to get off of sugar is to stop drinking soft drinks, as those represent about half of the sugar in American diets. And then you get into desserts and other kinds of things. But there's sugar in many, many, many different kinds of foods. And I'm a great believer in moderation, if you can figure out what that is. I think a Sugar is okay, and the big problem is a lot of it, and the other problem is that some people, once they can't stop it a little. I'm one of these people who can have candy in the house and not eat it. I know not everybody can do that. You know what? I want to get back to that. That's actually one of the points I want to talk to a little bit later, but I wanted to ask you, sort of before we get to that particular nutritional piece about sugar, that I don't remember where it came from in the book, but that concept of nutritional schizophrenia, what you were saying was there's an almost deliberate confusion. But the, well, maybe it's not deliberate, but it's very much helped the food industry. If we all as the public get caught up into our various food plans, there's the keto, there's the low carb, there's the paleo, the plant-based, the vegan, then we're kind of we're fighting amongst ourselves rather than the food industry itself. And did you want to say anything to that? I'd be happy to. And then you made the point earlier that the food industry is not a social service or a public health industry. That's not what it's about. It is a business like any other business. 
food could be widgets for all this industry cares. It doesn't matter what it is. Their job is to sell product and to make money for stockholders and profits for stockholders. Well, how do they do that? They have a pretty hard time in the United States because we have available in our food supply about 4,000 calories a day per capita, uh-huh. which for men, women, little tiny babies. On average, we probably need about 2,000 across the entire population. That means there's twice as much food available as the country needs. That makes the food industry really competitive. So in order for them to not only make a profit, but grow their profit every 90 days, because that's what Wall Street expects, work hard to do that. And to do that, they use the playbook of the cigarette industry. Food is not cigarettes, but the marketing is the same. Mm -hmm. I'm still stuck on this idea about breaking us off into camps. If you look on the internet, it's like we just don't know who to believe. Should I follow low carb? Should I follow keto? Should I follow paleo? What would you advise us to be able to navigate that? Well, I'm laughing because whenever I hear the question, who should I believe? My answer is, well, me, of course. I don't know how to do that in any other way. I think it's very difficult. And my advice to anyone who's confused about what to eat is use common sense. If it seems like it's magical, it's magical. It's probably not real. If it feels, I mean, the word breakthrough is always a sign that there's something going on that's not really working. Uh Anytime you hear the phrase, everything you thought you knew about nutrition is wrong. No, have some skepticism. Use common sense. If it makes sense, it's probably okay. If it doesn't make sense, if it seems magical, or if you think, oh, at last I found the this particular diet is going to solve all my problems, the chances are it's not. Well, I think all diets work. Okay. All work. They all work for a while, certainly. And you have to find the one that works best for you. Obviously, I think that diets that promote fruits and vegetables and uh, tell you not to eat a lot of junk food are the ones that make the most sense because we know what a healthy diet is. A healthy diet is one that contains a lot of fruits and vegetables and doesn't have a lot of junk food in it or what we're calling ultra-processed foods. Dietary advice is really simple. In fact, it's so simple that Michael Pollan does it in seven words. Food, not too much, mostly plants. That's all there is to it. Okay. Next question was going to be, along with this idea of this fraction, like who do you believe type of thing, we've also got all sorts of specialists. We've got the dietitians, the nutritionists. There you are as a PhD in nutrition health policy. Like, who do we believe in terms of our specialists? Yeah, I, as a clinician, people believe, I know what to say because I'm a doctor, but as you know, because you actually taught to medical students, We're not taught very much nutritional science at all. No, well, I think once again, you have to find out what they say, whether what they say makes sense or not. Is what they're saying consistent with what you've understood to be reasonable? I mean, I seriously believe that eat food, not too much, mostly plants takes care of a lot. It's about diet. So if somebody is saying something that gets more complicated than that, then I raise my eyebrows. If the diet is restricting whole categories of foods that, you know, I think vegetarian diets are fine. Vegan diets are fine. I'm not a vegan because I like food too much. I don't want to exclude whole categories of foods. But if people are telling you that you should only eat high fat meat, or you should only eat vegetables, or you should only eat one thing or another, that doesn't really make sense. The most important principle of nutrition is to eat a variety of relatively unprocessed foods. Your nutritional needs. Yeah. Well, I think that definitely uh, we are, are, all of us are watching on the same page in terms of the ultra processed foods and that that's something we definitely have to avoid. Now, what is your opinion about the idea about fake meats and ultra processed <laughs> uh, foods that are for potentially for the future? Oh, yeah. I don't know what to think about them. They're so controversial right now because yeah. the fake meat and the meat industry are at war and the fake meat people are at war with each other. And there are full page ads in the New York Times all the time. They're ultra processed foods. 
And yes, they're plant-based, but they meet the definition of ultra-processed is a very important, I think, the most important new concept that's come up in nutrition. It's just only within the last five years or so. And what it's done is it's given a specific definition to junk foods. So these are foods that are industrially produced, can't be made in home kitchens, have all kinds of ingredients that you don't have access to. And the fake meats meet that definition, Uh even though they're plant-based. So, you know, are they poisonous? I don't think so. Are they going to make you sick? I don't think so. Are they a reasonable substitute for meat? I don't know. I don't understand why people who are vegetarians think they need a meat substitute anyway, but that's just me. I think vegetables are fine just the way they are or tofu or whatever. I think all of those things are just fine. You don't need fake meats, but I know that there are people who really miss them And I've had parents say, oh, thank heavens we have these things. I can take my kids to a fast food place and have something that they can actually eat. This is just something that's not on my radar. One of my food rules is never eat anything artificial. And these are artificial. So I don't know. I think they're okay. It's if you like them, they taste good. I've tasted them. They really do taste like meat. It's, it's kind of amazing, actually. But, you know, if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. Okay. I want to backtrack a little bit. And you wrote a book that was called Why Calories Count from Science to Politics. Mm-hmm. And you kind of alluded to the idea of we, are, we sort of started off maybe eating around 2,000 calories a day, but the food industry has, through marketing, made it so in order to increase their uh, base of buyers, uh, have us eating 4,000 calories in such a day. No, 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 no. The calories increased by somewhere between 300 and 500 a day on average. Okay. Between 1980. No, that a lot of those 4,000 calories are wasted, which is another issue. Um, But between 1980 and 2000, when the prevalence of obesity went up very fast. Yes. People started eating more calories, but it was probably in the range of 300 to 500 a day. Okay. So now if you respectfully, if I can challenge you or ask you, what about the other people who challenge that thinking? Like Gary Tobes, who say it's not the calories, it's the actual food. Yeah. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, that's actually been tested in clinical trials and they don't show much difference in between, you know, I think one of the, I'm greatly in favor of eating less sugar. Don't make any mistake about that. I think everybody would be healthier eating less sugar, but I think it's because of the calories. And the studies that have been done to test that don't demonstrate that sugar is any different than any other source of calories. Maybe there'll be more studies that come out that show that I'm trying to keep an open mind. Okay. Well, there is a fair amount of research about the effect of high carbohydrate diets increasing the insulin load and therefore causing you know, all these things like metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so if you're saying there isn't that much research that supports that, that those calories are... Yeah, there's plenty of research that supports that. Yes. Plenty of research that supports that. But if you want to do something about diabetes, the first thing to do is to lose weight. I mean, and losing weight works just as well as stopping sugar. Oh, I see what you're saying. So you can lose weight by just like not like just, I guess you're saying eating less carbs or finding less calories. I'm greatly in favor of eating less as an approach to losing weight. Okay. So start with soft drinks. So this is where we are in total and complete agreement. I would start with soft drinks. And when I wrote my book, Soda Politics, which came in 2015, It's not a diet book. It's actually a book about food activism and how to do anti-soda advocacy. Yes. People wrote me and said, I read your book and I lost 10 pounds. Yes. I read your book and I lost 20 pounds. One person said, I read your book and I lost 80 pounds. Wow. Did that just by cutting sugary drinks out of their diet. That was the only change they made. Yes. So if you don't mind my just pushing this issue, are you saying that they lost that weight because it was a fewer calories, the calories that were in that soft drink, but it wasn't specifically that it was the sugar or the fact that it was refined carbs that they were drinking? Well, I don't think we have any way of demonstrating that right. one. You don't yeah. have a fatty drink. I think calories work as a first approximation. No, I mean, you cut that out of your diet. And these were people who were heavy drinkers of sugar-sweetened beverages. Yes. Well, could have been taking in 500 calories a day. 
they cut that out, they're cutting out 500 calories a day. That's going to make a difference. Okay, so now if you don't mind, am I right in summarizing what you said here that it still is mainly the calories? It's not specifically that it's the carbs or it's well, that's fat. What or- I believe. But I'm open to being convinced otherwise. Okay, well, I'm going to push the envelope a little bit and try to convince you in, in the sense that, so here I am and I'm representing, I guess, basically an anti-sugar crusade. And I'm coming from an addiction point of view. So you had said, so I, I mean, let's be honest, let's lay out our, uh, our, our biases. So my bias is very much that because of... I'm seeing an end-stage population, a fairly sick population of people who are addicted to very sugary items like pop and like sugary foods. And I mean, to the point where, so I'm going to ask you, what's your impression about this? If I say that not, certainly not everybody in the population, but that there is a small group, a subsection of the population that are unable to moderate in any way, because if they do have some of this specific nutrient of sugar that they will develop a uh, an obsessional pattern a craving obsessional pattern that can actually destroy their life because they get diabetes or whatever and they can't stop what's your thought about that first of all i know people who um are in that situation they should not eat sugar at all they need to deal with sugar the way anyone deals with an addiction Okay, so you do agree that that's a possibility, like as a nutritionist? Well, I know it's a possibility because people tell me okay. that this is a situation for them, and why would I not believe them? Yes. You know, if somebody tells me I can't eat sugar, if I eat sugar, this happens to me, this happens to me, this happens to me, yes. why would I not believe that? I, I would take that absolutely. I just, want, I, wanted to, I just wanted to hear it from you if you did actually believe that. I, so would, I would take it absolutely on face value. Yes. And then you have, that's a very different thing from somebody like me who can have candy in the house and not touch it. That's very different. So I don't have any idea. I, only a few people in my experience oh, have okay. said I have an addiction to sugar. Okay. But if somebody tells me that they're addicted to something, I believe it. Okay. I, believe it and then they go through what happens to them and their symptoms absolutely fit into addictive patterns okay stop i think it would be interesting because one of the things that you brought it up yourself is that rise in obesity definitely mimics the uh, rise in food intake it's not not an extra two thousand calories it's Three to four hundred calories, you said, and but you can also map that same rise to the rise of uh, the use of high fructose corn syrup, which is what Gary Tobes does. Mm-hmm. So that I mean, it is—it's a conversation where, in my mind, I, I mean, part of what I'm so excited about the work that you do is that you're exposing the sugar industry, and it seems like you're saying the sugar industry has made it so that we eat more than we need to, and that I would like to say. Part of that is because we eat more than we need to because we can't help it because we're so damn addicted to this stuff. Just well, it tastes good. An extra piece to your argument. I mean, even for people who don't feel that they're addicted, sure is delicious, and yeah. and, pe- and people like it. There was a very very important study done last year at the National Institutes of Health, in which an investigator at NIH had people in a metabolic ward, a locked metabolic ward for yeah. a month. Yeah. And he fed them ultra-processed foods for two weeks and then relatively unprocessed foods for two weeks. They liked both diets the same. Yeah. There was no difference except the processing. And the result of that was that when people were eating the ultra-processed foods, and they switched, so yeah. some people did it first, some people did it second, they ate 500 calories a day more. Yes. They didn't realize they were doing that. Yes. They gained two pounds during the two weeks. Yeah. And the, everybody is now looking to try to find out what it is about ultra-processed foods that makes people want to eat more of them. But if you just think about it, uh-huh. you just one. Yes. Remember that for potato yeah. chips? That's what the food industry is trying to do. Exactly. So I would say that that's actually the mechanism of addiction is right there, is that it's forcing you, not forcing you, but luring you to having more than you actually want to. And that's just addictive. It's not addiction, but it becomes addiction. And this is not because the food industry wants to make people fat. It's because the food industry wants to sell more food. Exactly. Yes, yes, which is which is I certainly agree with. You have another term and it kind of fits in here, the merchants of doubt, which is another I love that term. That and used with the tobacco industry and then with the food industry. 
questioning research that we have so that it's maybe true, but not really true. You remember when you brought that term up? I mean, I'm pulling stuff out from what you wrote 20 years ago. I have a book called Unsavory Truth. I think that's where it came from. Use the science of what we eat. And it's about food industry funding of nutrition research uh, practice and advice. Yes. And the function of the food industry was to create confusion and doubt in some research that would otherwise be solid. And I would like to just... uh, Tobacco industry playbook again. Yeah. What the tobacco industry did and why it took 50 years from the time people knew that cigarettes caused lung cancer to the time when people stopped smoking was because the tobacco industry was brilliant at casting doubt on the research. And the food has done the same kind of thing. Yes. And it does it with the whole concept of food addiction, too, because we're continually struggling to say that this thing exists but there's continual dismissiveness and scant doubt about it. So it seems to be a tool that's used by the food industry wide scale still. Well, it's still, as I said, they're selling products. Yeah. So, you know, if you're the sugar industry, you don't want people to think that there's anything bad about sugar. Uh-huh. And, you know, there've been studies that have come out over the last several years where people have had access to sugar industry documents that date back to the 1960s. They could show that the sugar industry tried to convince dentists that sugar didn't cause tooth decay and that they worry about fluoride and other things instead. And they also tried to convince scientists that sugar wasn't a problem in heart disease, diabetes, obesity, or any of those conditions. Everybody should be worried about fat. And we now have those documents. The sugar industry is pretty quiet about the kind of research that it funds. Yes. Mostly leaves it up to Coca-Cola to do the funding. Yeah. You know, I was going to actually thank you for saying that. Uh, One of my next questions was going to be the pushback. You are very brave about your willingness to stand and actually name names. You mentioned Coca-Cola. And have you had pushback professional people attempting to disparage your work, like just on that level? Well, I have plenty of trolling on my blog or on my Twitter account, but I have very civilized relationships with executives of Coca-Cola. The presidents of Coca-Cola North America have come and met me in my office. They mostly want me to know about all the terrific things they're doing. And I've had very little pushback, or I had tenure when I was still working. I'm retired now. What are they going to do? Fire me? They can't. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which gives you some more freedom, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't feel very brave. But you were one of the first people, in fact, I think the first person to actually take on the food industry in a very respectable manner, you know, teaching and then uh, actually having some policy intervention. Well, my in my book, Food Politics, was where I did that. And yeah. Came- 2002, it has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of references. Uh And there was only one attack on it from an industry, and that was the sugar industry, amazingly enough. Yes. I got a letter from a lawyer from the sugar industry saying that they were going to take the threatening legal action because I had said on a radio program that soft drinks contain sugar and no nutrients to speak of. And I, of all people, should know that soft drinks haven't contained sugar for years. Oh. They, they contain high fructose corn syrup. When I read that, I just burst out laughing because high fructose corn syrup is sugar. I, yeah. I'm, that's what it is. And I just thought it was so funny that they said that. And But I was told to take it very seriously, and I wrote a rebuttal. And I had, that letter, by the way, is posted on my website, I think, under the media. It's way, way down at the bottom of the media tab. And also my response is posted there. And they never did sue. But I ran into the head of the Sugar Association in a meeting a few months later, and I told him I was having so much fun with his letter. Oh. I was <laughs> Every talk I gave, and I had slides of it, and he said, between clenched teeth, we're just glad you're being more careful now. And so now I say sugars, plural, right? and that seems to cover it. That seems to work, yes. Okay. 
I know that there's a lot of questions that people are asking. I have a a couple of areas I want to make sure we cover, and then I'm going to go to the questions, which will probably tease out some of what we've talked about. But I'm really, really keen to know. Another phrase that you use, or maybe I've already said it, is the personal is political. You write in uh, Food Politics, I wrote Food Politics to help shift the conversation from the personal to the political. You're a classic 1960s kind of person, because that's the phrase. I know. Yeah. Charged. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's why I love this, because I come from that, that time, too. And that the whole idea is that you write in considering what to do about obesity. I hope to focus attention on the societal factors that make a healthy weight so difficult and that the food industry are the powerful contributors to an unhealthy food environment. So it's become from personal to political. Before I ask about the political, the personal. So I know that You got into this whole business because you were, I think, studying nutrition or something, and then you saw that it... Can you explain how you got into this whole business? I have a doctorate in molecular biology, and I was... I was teaching in a biology department at Brandeis University, and I was given a nutrition class to teach. And it was this emotional experience. It was like falling in love. Oh, I just loved it. It was so hard to teach. Fell in molecular biology to undergraduates Uh because very abstract. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't do anything with it. And nutrition was so much fun to teach because Mm. everybody eats and everybody got it. And I thought it was just the best way of teaching undergraduate biology that I ever had imagined. Uh And students loved learning about it. And I loved learning about it. I've never looked back. But But from there, you became this icon of taking on the food. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I'm very old. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it took a long time. So what got you to say, look, I'd like to step out of that teaching role and move into something that's more political? Uh, I mean, there was actually a turning point. Mm-hmm. And that was, I went to a meeting at the National Cancer Institute in the early 1990s. And it was a meeting on behavioral causes of cancer, smoking and diet. Yes. I was representing diet, but everybody else was representing smoking. And I knew that cigarettes were bad for you. Uh-huh. I knew that they caused cancer. And I knew that cigarette companies were marketing to children. Yeah. But I never paid attention to it. Uh-huh. And this meeting, they showed, this was before PowerPoint, they showed slide after slide after slide of marketing of cigarettes to people in third world countries. There was one talk about marketing to kids and it just showed all the ways in which cigarette companies were marketing to kids. And it was jaw dropping. And I thought, how come I never paid any attention to this? Uh-huh. Yeah. It was just part of the landscape. It was just kind of there. And I never noticed it. And I walked out of that meeting saying, we should be doing this for Coca-Cola. Uh-huh. And I started paying attention. Right on. Yeah. And, and when I wrote Food Politics, I was surprised at the reaction to Food Politics. Because uh-huh. I thought I was just describing the obvious. Yes, like you said, that elephant in the room is actually when, yeah, you thought it was, everyone could see it. I mean, the thing that's interesting, like I would say, do you feel like you've been successful in your work over the years since that day when you thought, we have to talk about this? Well, I'd love to take credit for everything that's happening, but I'm uncomfortable doing that. I think there's much more awareness of food industry involvement. The coronavirus pandemic, if anything, ever made obvious what the food industry's role is. This pandemic has done that. I mean, just look at what's happening in meatpacking plants. The most distressing thing I have ever seen. So, yeah, I think lots and lots of things have happened that have changed. I see changes over the last 30 years in many aspects of the food system, I would adore to take credit for it. Give me credit. I'll take it. Well, Thank you, you. Know, the credit that I would be more than happy to give you is I don't know how much the food industry has backed off, but the fact that we see it now and that it, that we have a way other than just being disgruntled, a way to actually respond. I mean, that's thanks to your work because you've kind of elevated what could be a fight into an academic discussion and a political discussion. And I don't know anybody who's written quite as extensively about, I mean, more people have written since then, but I think you really started that process. 
you mentioned retirement and what would you like to do next? What would you like to see next? Well, I'll tell you what I am doing. Okay. I mean, first of all, this book is just coming out. Yes. And- yeah, next week. And I'm teaching this fall at NYU an online course. Let me tell you, this was a steep learning curve. I'm teaching a course on food systems in the coronavirus era. So the course is absolutely about how the coronavirus is demonstrating flaws in the food system and what we need to do about it. Wow. Uh, starting with meatpacking workers and ending with advocacy. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. So again, you're just bringing out um, what's there and we're able to dissect that elephant, not only see it, but dissect it. I want to turn all these students into food activists. Absolutely. Which actually gets to the next point, which is so that the personal to the political. So what can we do now? Because here we are, we're on this webinar, you've been writing books, you've been talking a great deal. Individually, what can we do to do our bit with this whole issue? Well, I think there are two things. First okay. of all, you can make your personal diet in, in consistent with your belief system. Okay. You, know, you believe that a diet that's based on fresh foods is healthier and you want to do that, then shop at farmers markets, support local farmers, try not to waste food. I mean, do whatever it takes to live the way you believe. And I think that has a value beyond just one person, because if you're doing that, your friends are going to notice, you'll be influencing other people, it'll spread. And so I think personal response, taking personal responsibility is very, very important. Teach kids how to cook. Teach kids how to grow food. That would be a terrific thing to do. And then you can move on in that. And I think many people in America are uncomfortable about politics. It's horrible to watch. It just makes you miserable when you even think about it. Uh-huh. But I think it's really important for people to get involved in politics. And because we're in an election year, the most important thing that you can do this year is to vote. Mm-hmm. Hold your nose and vote. <laughs> get your friends to vote. Do everything that you can to get yeah. people to vote in this election. That is a political act that individuals can take that absolutely matters. Absolutely matters now more than ever. And then if you want to do more than that, you find an organization that's working on something that you think is really important. Support that organization. Join that organization. And then if you're braver, start taking action, write letters to congressional representatives, call Mm -hmm. your congressional representatives, use the political system in whatever way you can. I think joining a group is the best way to do that because then you have lots of people who are doing this. But I think individuals can do a lot. And I'm greatly in favor of individuals taking whatever action is comfortable for you. I'm comfortable writing books, writing a blog, teaching. That's what I do. There are other things that I'm not comfortable doing and I don't do those. Yeah, it's an important question. And that is just the whole obesity crisis, where the general view is that it's an individual flaw. People just have to stop eating and exercise more. And Good luck with that. Yes, I wanted to know what your opinion was about that, because my sense is that we could make that a political statement as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm greatly in favor of people eating less if you can figure out a way to do it. And if weight is a problem, but it's almost impossible to do it alone because it's a societal problem as well. We live in a society in which the norm is to encourage people to eat all the time, everywhere in very large portions. Unless you're somebody who has nerves of steel It's impossible to resist food if it's in front of you. So I think we need to change our political system to make the healthy choice, the easy choice, and the preferred choice. And this this means politics. It means putting some curbs on the food industry. And I was just thrilled last year when a commission of the British Journal, The Lancet, came out with a suggestion that we need to strengthen governance. We need to get the food industry out of governance and out Mm -hmm. of And we need to strengthen civil society. And they had a long laundry list of ways in which the food industry ought to be curtailed, not disappeared, but some 
regulations imposed on the food industry across the board, so it's a level playing field, they should not be permitted to market junk foods to children. Uh-huh. They should not be permitted to be involved in public health recommendations. I mean, I could go on and on and on. It's a great big laundry list. And that was the first major report I had ever seen uh-huh. that actually came out and said that. Okay, thank you. Tony, did you want to... Uh... A question. First of all, Marion, thank you so much for all your information and what you do. I did have an opportunity to, to get a sneak peek at the book. And some, uh, I, I get one and hold one up. Well, <laughs> you got it. It's a little thing. It's just six inches high. Well, it's a very friendly read. It's a, it's, yeah, it's it great is. when you're sitting outside. But something you talk about in the book. So now the food industry, their reasoning for our food supply is basically, if I understand it correctly, is, well, the only way they can feed the world is this massive industrial agra, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And you talk about the big excuse, but would you be kind enough to elaborate further in, in terms of this whole, this is the only way you can feed the world now? Yeah, one of the reasons, I think, for the sharp rise in obesity between 1980 and 2000 was the huge amount of food that was being produced. And that's agricultural policy from the 1970s, when we went from a food supply that had a little over 3,000 calories a day per capita to one that had 4,000 calories per day. The food industry had to sell that. And they had to sell it at a time when Wall Street changed the way that it evaluated corporations from blue chip stocks that gave long, slow returns on investment to stocks that had to give very fast, immediate returns on investment. And that just huge pressure on food companies. And then marketing to children was deregulated in the early 1982 also. And so the excuse for all of this is that we have to feed the world, but there's plenty of food. At the moment, there's plenty of food for everybody. It's not that poor people lack food. It's that they lack money to buy it. And if they had money to buy it, they wouldn't be lacking food. And so that's just, we have a subsidy system in the United States that subsidizes food producers for producing more food. The main effect of United States subsidies is to encourage overproduction. And that doesn't help anybody. It's bad for people. It's bad for the environment. It's a very bad system. It needs to be fixed. Yes. And it just fosters the addictiveness as well. Okay. I'm going to go to Mary B. first and then Anna S. You're on deck. So Mary B. would like to ask you a question. Hi, Marion. I'm a dietitian and I live in Quebec now, but I used to work with Dr. Tarman in Toronto on food addiction. So I have questions related to consumers figuring out what foods are ultra processed because it's so difficult to figure out the changes in our food supplies. So two things, one is the GMO crops, the big five. Mm. Are, is it possible that the big five GMO crops, wheat, soy, canola, peanut, and corn, affect the human body similarly to ultra-processed foods? For example, do they contribute to that loss of control eating that was studied in, I forget the name of the author, sadly, right now, but that two-week, two-week crossover design study with the clients in-house, ultra-processed versus non-ultra-processed, where they ate 500 calories per day more and gained weight. Do you think GMO foods, crops, will be part of that? And GMO crops are also used a lot in ultra-processed foods, so it's kind of tricky. But you know the industry better. What are your instincts on that one? Yeah, I think not. Okay. Uh I actually uh, get into so much trouble for saying this, but I actually think that GMO crops are okay from an eating standpoint. You know, and most of them are, are food for animals or in the United States, they're food for cars because 40% of United States corn is used for ethanol, which is a whole separate story. But the thing about GMOs that's distressing is the way that they're grown, their industrialization, um, they're used in processed foods. When they're used in foods, they're the you know that's where high fructose corn syrup comes from. That's that's where all of these come from. They're monoculture, and they're used with glyphosate. And there are real questions about the safety of, of glyphosate. So I think there are real questions about GMOs, and you don't need to invent ones that probably aren't true. 
though. I'm not concerned about people eating them. They're part of junk food. But the identification of ultra-processed isn't that hard. You look at the label, and if you don't have those ingredients in your kitchen, it's ultra-processed. Okay, so that means... That's an easy way to do it. And if it's got a lot of sugar, it's ultra-processed. So milk protein then would be considered ultra-processed, quite simply. Because you don't have it in your kitchen. So, so and milk solids, okay. Yeah, I mean, if they're being added, then that's an industrial. You can't do it. It's industrially produced. It's got added this, that, or the other thing. That's an, a sort of crude way of doing it, but it's it works pretty well. The number of ingredients is also a good sign. Okay, Mary, do you it's have funny. another question? Yeah, I guess the other one, I, I just tied the two together. Yeah, so it's just it's really hard to find a yogurt or a cottage cheese without the added artificial ingredients to it. Like you think of milk being a basic food. It's really hard to find things that don't have those added ingredients, which is really unfortunate. It certainly is. Ready, go ahead. I, I think, Mary, that was Kevin Hall you were referring to, I think it was, yes. right? Yep. Who was the researcher, yes. Yes, great. He was the guy that sparked my documentary. But Anna, if you can just start speaking. Yeah, thank you so much, Mary. And I've been following your work for many years and appreciate all the work you've been doing. Yeah, look um, at the background. <laughs> uh, yeah, produce is, is my game. I was curious kind of what your thoughts were on the planetary diets that have been, been outlined by the Eat Lancet Commission. Yeah, it's the planetary diet was produced by another Lancet Commission last year. And it's a diet that had two major recommendations, a doubling of fruits and vegetables and a halving of the amount of meat. And it said that for people in industrialized countries, they should be eating on average half the meat that was being consumed and twice the amount of vegetables. And I thought those were completely reasonable recommendations. Where I thought it got unreasonable was in its precision. Because the diet, as produced in the Lancet Commission report, gave gram quantities uh, that they were recommending on a daily basis. And when people looked at those, they thought they were ridiculous. I wish they had been more general and more done it in terms of servings or something like that. But that was what the commission did, and they were heavily criticized for a lot of things, for vegan ideology, which I think they weren't, for not taking developing countries into consideration, which they also absolutely did if you read the report. One problem was that the report was 50 pages of very, very fine print. It was really hard to read. And I thought that... What surprised me about the objection to the Eat Lancet report was when they showed pictures of what the diet looked like. It looked exactly like the Department of Agriculture's pictures of dinners when they introduced the My Plate Food Guide. It looked exactly the same. So they're, you know, they're promoting a largely but not necessarily exclusively plant-based diet. I thought it was fine. Thank you so much, Marion. It was such a pleasure to hear a molecular biologist. You're one of my heroes, an activist. <laughs> and I have a family member like you that can eat in moderation. It is an, I am in awe. Right? It's I am in awe. Because the other three members of the family, we have all been over 250 pounds, 224. One died at 368. So we have serious food addiction issues. I am in recovery 22 years, not eating grains or sugar and maintaining 95 pound weight loss. So I'm one of those people that says I'm an addict and abstinence works. I'm on the A team for abstinence. And what happens is I want to ask you about specifically because not eating grains and sugar eliminated so many physical problems, so many emotional, mental problems. I mean, just problems. It took care of a lot of things. But high fructose corn syrup in our eating, I mean, in so many things now is affecting our children and affecting them because the parents are giving their children more fruits because the children don't want so many vegetables. So they're eating more fruits out of the five servings per day. And they're getting, in addition to those fruit pieces with the peels, which are good, they're getting the high fructose corn syrup, all of this being addressed in the liver. So they're getting fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease at such an early age. 
Are you suggesting that they're getting that from fruit? No, from high fructose corn syrup and fruit and fruit. That Mm. the fructose in the fruit, Mm. excessive amounts of fruit. So, for example, I eat fruit each day. I eat one cup of fruit. I eat four to five cups of vegetables and I eat protein and oil at most of my meals. Mm. And I eat protein at all of my meals and oil at most of my meals. And I love the way I feel. I'm 73 years old, so I'm retired, but I'm an activist now. And so in terms of high fructose corn syrup, how can we get that out of our food supply so that children can have real fruit with the peels on? Well, I think everybody has to understand that high fructose corn syrup is sugar. It is. It's sugar. It's glucose and fructose, just like table sugar is glucose and fructose. And I don't know anybody who has gotten fat on fruit and vegetables. I I suppose it's possible, but you would have to eat such a large volume to do that. So it's what else are they eating? Are they feeding their kids? Where is the high fructose corn syrup? I I think it's probably in the refined products. I think that's what you're referring to. Yes, absolutely. So you want to get the ultra processed food out to the extent possible, but how terrific that you've been able to do what you've done for all this time. Congratulations. That's really terrific. It works. Abstinence from the things that you said it, the abstinence from those things that we cannot tolerate. That works. Can't control them. You know, my father was a 350 pound, three pack a day smoker, and he died when he was in his mid forties. And I'm very happy that I didn't inherit whatever that gene was. Yeah. I know. Thank you for sharing that. So I would like to thank you, Marion Nessel, so much for your time sharing your knowledge and your advocacy for the hour, but also for the career that you've done because you brought out our ability to speak to the food industry other than just with disgruntled grunts. And just as a, for you, maybe think about uh, in your advocacy forward that another elephant in the room might be the whole uh, addictiveness, the hyperpalatability um, focus of the food industry and how that's actually hurting people beyond just physical health, but also mental health. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.